piece of advice I have for someone trying to succeed in the film industry or any creative space is if you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're doing it wrong. Welcome to Around the Craft Table, a podcast about movies, making movies, and other stuff. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back to Run the Craft People. It's Miles here, and today I'm joined by Miranda Morales and Jamel Pasqua. We're going to be talking about their new short film, Man with a Million Faces. What the hell is this? I thought I ordered you to gather everyone. It's Christmas, sir. We're lucky we have them. Jesus Christ. We're about to arrest one of the worst murders in the history of this country. And all we've got are you three. You've just heard a clip of it to open the show. So before we dive in, why don't we start with a little introduction from each of you and find out who you are. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, okay, hi, I'm Miranda. You guys know me. Anyone who's listening probably knows my voice. Hello. Um, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I do like media consulting uh independent sort of contract gigs here and there um work primarily as an assistant director on films uh on indie films i should specify uh as well as um writing and directing kind of focusing in writing right now but have done some directing in the past and this is the last one that i co-directed with jermel so um that's me hello hello my name is Jermel. Um, I am 24 years old. I like long walks to the fridge. Um, oh, same. <laughs> I love the fridge. <laughs> Not much else to go it's right so now. Cool, so, you know. Yes, it is very cool, especially when it's open. Yeah, I'm the co-director of Mammoth and Million Faces. Um, we worked on it 2018 to 2019. Uh, I was also the co-writer and I was the picture editor for the film. Um, in terms of myself specifically, I work in the film industry. Um, I do assistant directing and locations department work, depending on the gig, a balance between the two. Um, so I do uh, film sets that shoot in Winnipeg. I work as a crew member in them. Uh, Man with a Million Faces was is one of the last ones that I probably the last one that I directed and wrote right before I hopped into the more union world of things and you know I sold out to um my, for money <laughs> I sold out for money <laughs> Woo! I've been I've been I've still been writing my own stuff but uh haven't been able to really fully make anything as of late but anyway um yeah, oh, no, you so, made a little, you made a little uh, video there. I did, I did. Came out on Vimeo. Pandemic video. I it was, uh, I made a dumb parody of, uh, not a parody actually, more of a spoof of um, Project X. But if Project X was set in social distancing, so. Nice. Uh, it's uh. I just dubbed. Probably it. your best work. Probably, no, probably one of my best work <laughs> so far this year. My only work, so I guess by default it is also the, it's the best, you know. XD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way to describe it. <laughs> All right, 
That's the end of the show. Thanks for being on, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Right. Thanks, guys. Have Bye-bye. a good day, guys. Hope yeah, you enjoyed the movie. Later. Hope um, you enjoyed the movie. Watch the movie. It's uh, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so let's actually uh, deep dive into this film and start with um, the obvious, as you've both said now, and I neglected to say at the top. It's called Men with a Million Faces. And whoever wants to go first, uh, start by taking me through the idea phase and the concept. Right. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of go off of um, part of the paperwork that we had back in, back in, uh, back when... You're doing this prepared? <laughs> well, no, we're, we're, we were pulling this from, uh, we were pulling this from uh, the, the application that we had when we applied for the grant. We had to come up literally from like start to finish the entire movie on paper. So we got all that information here. Oh, wow. So I'm using a, a bit of a cheat code, you know? Uh, so the nice. movie, well, it's the log line. An inspector weird with guilt remembers the events of one tragic night. So essentially the, uh, the film is about a man who uh, lives through in his head uh, the worst failure of his life. And essentially what, what, what uh, the story that we were trying to tell is this man... Uh, in this case, James Buchanan, the, character, the main character in the movie, um, he tries to prove himself so he can, you know, progress as a person and as a, a member of his of his workforce. Um, but by doing so, the tragedy happens, which ironically does make, progress him, just not in the way that he intended. So that's sort of the story. Uh, and in, in terms of the plot, it's, it takes place on Christmas night, uh, of 1926 and they are just at the verge of catching um man with a million faces the uh the uh the main villain that uh, that they're trying to arrest and find his whereabouts and um it is now all coming to a to a head in this in this short film you know they're they're gonna get him this is it so that's that's uh sort of i guess the uh story plot of the i guess movie. i'll I guess I'll just add um, a little bit of background about, like, the characters. Um, Because these characters didn't just kind of come about... Well, one of them didn't come about out of... uh, For this short film exclusively. So, um, the companies that are kind of, like, behind the production of this film is... um, Along with uh, Jermel... Uh, our good friends Adam Yazinski and Jesse DeRockney's uh, film company 49 North <coughs> Productions. Or is it Productions or just 49 North? Right now it's just 49, it. North. 49 North. 49 North, sorry. Um, so along with that production company, um, it's also um, kind of headed by the Manitoba Mystery Company, which is a, a, a small business that I started along with a couple other individuals. Um, and it is a um, murder mystery company that creates like um, cre- all kinds of different content, like for um, all kinds of different creative mediums um, in the form of murder mystery. So we do um, theatrical live tours, like a theater show where we go on, on an on-site um, performance and um, it'll be like at a heritage location or something. And um, we've adapted like true stories in the past Um 
to kind of highlight Manitoba, Manitoba history, um, and also connecting it with the heritage park aspect as well. Um, and we're exploring writing some radio plays that we hope to put out sometime later this year, if not next. Um, but this short film was kind of the backstory of one of the major kind of detective characters that we've followed throughout the last couple of live shows that we've done. Um, Inspector James Buchanan, who in this film is a detective. This is early in his career. This is kind of his origin story, as it were, um, and why he uh, is the way he is and one of the major tragedies in this character's past. Okay. You've kind of touched on it a little bit given the history of and the genesis of these characters, but why 1926? Why that particular period of time? Um, so Manitoba mystery stories, the, the established world of it, that, you know, all the places they've done so far, most of them take place, if I'm not mistaken, in the 30s, yeah? Yeah, we've done a couple in, like, 32, 35, and then we did one in 40. Yeah, so 26. So we, we had to pick a time that would make sense... So it was more of a logistical choice to put it at a time where it's not, you know, too uh, early that it's like he's way too young, but not too close to um, to uh, when their 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 plays uh, have already taken place. Yeah, just to make it yeah. make more sense canonically. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah. As opposed to doing it in a modern setting, putting the characters aside and in the in the historical aspect of the um, canon aside, what is it about the classical time period that draws you more than, say, doing a modern noir? I mean, logistically speaking, and like, um, I, I guess going back to the theatrical shows, I think we always, because we were adapting, um, we were adapting historical material, we, it only really made sense to adapt it in the same time period because what law enforcement and what um for example um forensics research was able to do at that time is slightly different than what we have access to now i mean we have access to a lot more resources now in in terms of crime investigation and 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 stuff like that and so a lot of those a lot of those cases rely on the parameters and the resources that they had at that time. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why originally we, we chose to just literally adapt, you know, literally say it's this year. It's the same year that it actually happened. Um, yeah. You know, like step into the thirties with us. Let's go on an investigation kind of thing. Um, I think just to kind of go off of like aesthetically, I mean, noir, I like I I've always been like a huge fan of noir and 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 kind of the way it feels. I like that it's able to be fun, it's able to be dramatic and in in a sense it's able to be playful in ways that yeah. just the classical drama sometimes has Kent. like it kind of borderlines on camp in that respect. Um yeah. And so I like the experimenting of that genre and I like that there's a little bit more wiggle room with how seriously you can you're really taking yourself when you're making something in that genre and you can kind of you can kind of blow it up and make it a little bit more like here's all the stuff and i don't know i i don't know jermel i don't know if you agree but it's 
it's definitely more of like a I feel like it's more playful in in some ways. Yeah, I, I agree. Because, um, I mean, obviously there's limitations to doing period pieces. So you kind of, there are some creative leeways that you kind of have to take in order to to uh, fulfill some of the gaps that are uh, admittedly, you know, they're missing in those historical moments that you're adapting. Uh, and that's that's where the, the playfulness that Miranda's talking about can be added on. So you can sort of get away with some things being a little more, so let's say, campy or not so serious. Yeah, because I, I, you know, or a little bit less convincing. Yeah, I mean, it's historical reports and stuff like that. Obviously, they'll they'll go over the most important moments that happened. They're not gonna go over, you know, what the guy was drinking at two in the morning right before bed if it's not relevant but you could obviously start adding those yeah. little things if you're adapting that story and play around in that in that in those little boxes you got i also wouldn't say that this film is like a noir to the t or anything like that it's definitely it's definitely like a it has noir elements but i think it's more of a thriller drama than a noir like a classical noir yeah yeah like it's not okay. it's not in black and white and it's it's not trying to be like a representation of that sort of classical. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not, we're not trying um, to do that. It's just, it definitely is inspired by. Very crime. Definitely more of a crime sure. drama with more elements. That would be the best way to describe it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if we take a second and dive into more of the, the screenplay itself and the writing process, what was that like for the two of you? I assume you co-wrote? Yeah, yeah, we did. Jermel primarily wrote the script, and then I would come in for, like, suggestions and edits. At least that's how I remember it. It was a while ago now. Yes, that is pretty much exactly how it was. So I sort of took the lead on how we sort of divided it is um, I took the lead on the plot. Miranda took the lead on characters. Um, and then we kind of okay. wove them together that way. Um, so I, I was the one that came up with all the um, the plot beats, uh, the actual events that happen in the short film. Uh, and then Miranda yeah. would then take a pass through and go, okay, this person should be saying this and not this because it would th- um, this character wouldn't say that, so on and so forth. Uh, and that's how we sort of divided the uh, the writing aspect of of the of the script. Um, and then on top of that. We were going for, uh, we were heavily, heavily borrowing from, uh, well, I, I was anyway for plot, Silence of the Lambs, with the with the misdirection for the for the raid, that was yeah. taken directly from Silence of the Lambs yeah. with with Clarice and Hannibal and the the FBI, and we were also borrowing a little bit, you know, like the the more grittier, angrier detective, um from other noir uh, crime drama shows uh, like Broadchurch, for example, was a big one. But I mean, you could kind of pull that, uh, that, that trope from a lot of things. So with the work being divided the way it was, did you guys uh, find yourself at odds with each other in terms of direction of the script at times, like the direction that it was going or the style that it should go? Was that it? issue kind of between the two of you um i wouldn't call it issue was there like moments where like 
you know, uh, I don't know about that or I don't know about this. Yeah, there are moments like that. Um, but on the script writing level, I don't think we really clashed that much, really, on anything. It was more just like, mm, I don't know about that one. And it's like, okay. And then we would, we would tweak it. Creative Yeah, we would just, we would just tweak it. Uh, but we didn't really fully yeah. had like a, like, a, like a huge disagreement on anything crazy. Because it was, it was pretty established earlier on how what we would have final say on, uh, on on a script level so okay the biggest notes i ever had for jermel where i was trying to like kind of um i guess influence the script's creative process was like like jermel was saying about characters um sort of like dialogue pieces things that they would say versus things they wouldn't say and i remember i think right it was like maybe a month before we were shooting i like extended the scene by like a page and a half or something of dialogue. And um, and then I remember us going back and like cutting half of that, but we kept like a bit of it. But I remember that being the biggest significant change that like I was trying to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you'll know which scene uh, when, when you watch the film, which scene I'm talking about, but it's where uh, James and Walter have their, uh, their discussion in the middle of the film and, I just wanted to flesh it out a bit more, and then Jermel and I came to a pretty good compromise on that, so I was happy in the end with it. Yeah, it was just a matter of, like, because admittedly, the first pass-through that I did, yeah, it, she, she was right. It was missing um, those dialogue moments that show their character more. Uh, and then she added a lot of it, and then we then go, okay, well, you know, she, he has three blocks of dialogue but I feel like if we get rid of the two blocks and leave the first block, it'll still achieve the same statement that what he's trying to say to the other character. So we just, you know, we put it all on there and then we started trimming. And then what ultimately got left behind in the script is what's on the screen. Okay. On the script level, what were some of the themes that you guys were aiming to cover thematically? What were you after? I guess the one of the big ones is guilt theme of guilt and how the measure of a man uh so like essentially like how you measure a man based on his ability to overcome failure and what happens to him afterwards Ooh. and i mean i guess the short delves into that a little bit and then in the end you kind of see him still 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 struggling uh, held down and weighted down by it so yeah. it's not his quite the, the the short doesn't quite do his full arc because it shows his failure and him struggling with his failure and then afterwards it's sort of left open to keep the story going but yeah that's what we were trying to kind of go for is is guilt and the ability to move on yeah we played a lot with the relationship between um mentor and apprentice kind of like taking a little bit of I, I know, Jermel, we were talking a little bit about taking that inspiration from certain animes a little bit with Walter and James. Yeah. Um, in in terms of the, the, the structure, the way they spoke to each other and a little bit of their hierarchy and relationship was also like a theme, I think, yeah. throughout the, the short. Yeah, another big theme is the, the student uh, eventually will have to deal with things that the master was dealing with you know it's a, it's a common trope and things like star wars and anime you know there's there's a yeah. there's a villain that's that keeps persisting and that problem keeps persisting and then eventually the master 
has to train a successor to to then be hopefully good enough um, when the master has to leave and it's his turn to deal with that same problem. Um, so we were that was something that um, passing the torch, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was something that uh, I wanted to implement in the story as well. There's this bit at the beginning of 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 the deliberation scene where they're deciding what to do about their situation with the serial killer and Walter, um, played by Jason Salomon Dyke, uh, he goes to, uh, his liquor and he drinks two glasses of scotch and the moment's kind of held with the rest of the, uh, police officers and, uh, James, the detective, watching. And you see there's a moment where James sort of rolls his eyes and is like, oh my god, not this again kind of thing. But then later in the canon of Manitoba Mystery Co. and the character of James Buchanan, we know that he later becomes just like that and he becomes uh, a bit of an alcoholic at work, like dipping into the liquor for sure to like get through the day. And so it's kind of one of those things where we do, we can turn into our, you know, the people um, that sort of led us on this path, uh, whether or not we wanted to or not. So. I, I'm always a fan of themes that deal with stuff like that and, and, and works that deal with stuff like that. It's coming back to me a little bit, specifically, like, as we're talking about themes, uh, the one that, because we mentioned, you know, related media so, so far we've mentioned sounds of the lambs and Broadchurch. the other one uh, and we mentioned anime a little bit that specifically is um the one that we that i pulled from is my hero academia that's the one where there's a there's a villain called all for one and he's a persistent villain throughout the show and uh what happens is he for some reason cannot be defeated and the his rival the one for all users um the power keeps getting passed down and each time it gets passed down they get closer and closer to beating him until eventually you know they beat him but not until several generations of that power being passed down so that sort of theme uh inspired man with a million faces because he's a guy that can keep uh getting away from them despite them being you know really good detectives this is the one guy that keeps getting away from them and yeah now buchanan has to now deal with it because even his master before him who was the better and more talented detective failed and and perished so i was going i was going for that same sort of story but obviously instead of you know people with superpowers and and crazy fighting you take that same idea and then you uh mold it into this into this crime drama world so yeah I, I definitely was pulling from anime oh yeah by the time this episode comes out by the way uh the film will be out so go watch it because spoiler alert the guy dies <laughs> 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 i know you already said that but uh okay so you've kind of mentioned a couple of names of characters and cast in the discussion of themes and such but let's talk about that a little bit more so um, how did you go about finding your crew and your cast, and where did you start with both crew and cast? Who did you grab first? Who did you grab last? And why did you grab those people? Uh, so James Buchanan has been played by 
uh, good friend of ours, uh, Dagan Parrott, for years. So he was a natural choice to reprise his role. So that's kind of just, you know, we, we love working with Dagan and he knows the character and he was like the only choice in, in my opinion for, for the short. Um, and then we, uh, we knew we wanted to work with, uh, I mentioned him earlier, the podcast, uh, Jason Salamandike. We, we knew we wanted to work with him pretty early on because we, we knew that he, uh, like I'd worked with him before on my previous, uh, short, the replacement, uh, when we shot in 2018. And I knew that, um, like we work well together. I mean, Jermel, I know you wanted to work with Jason. Yeah. And, and he had the right look um, and the right, like grit sort of yeah. feel to him. And yeah. he, kind of, he, he looked the part. He's, he's great. Um, and so, uh, th- there was a couple, you know, messaging back and forth, trying to, you know, get it, schedule it at a good time where he was able to be there. Um, and we were able to make that work pretty easily. And it was actually the last, uh, non-union sh- non-union uh short film that jason ever did because he's actor now so yeah literally we finished the shoot and then the next day he was going to be union yeah so we we just we just had his like the literally the last minute (laughs) so one more day and we would have we would have had to go through all the paperwork but because we did it on the saturday not the sunday it was fine and then our other cast we had um the two davids (laughs) so we had David Lang and David Swim. Um, they played our two police officers. And then we had a small cameo from Jack Meyer playing Basil Johnson, another kind of Easter egg for Manitoba Mystery Co-related storylines, um, as well as the man with a million faces himself, um, played by Chris Sousa. How did you go about finding them? Did you do auditions? Did you know that you wanted these people and just make phone calls? I know you talked about that a bit with Jason, but what about the others and Dagan as well? Uh, Chris, I know. I mean, I know. I wanted to work with Chris like super bad yeah. on something, and so um, I don't know. We were like, you know, you look the part for this, you know, this role, and would you like to come be in the the short film? I mean, it was relatively chill casting process, and I think we did end up asking for. Um, some headshots and resumes in the end for the two police officers. And when I, we only found one that we really felt good about, uh, I just asked around the university of Winnipeg theater department and, and, and found uh, the younger David, young David. And uh, yeah, that's kind of just how it went down. <laughs> it was pretty chill. That was pretty an ongoing chill. bit during the shoot. Oh young, yeah. David and young David. Yeah. Nice. David squared. <laughs> now let's transition to the other side of that and talk about the crew. Did you know from sort of out of the gate who you wanted for what positions? Um, it was actually uh, choosing the crew was actually not too too bad at all. It was just a matter of the only thing that was hard was we knew who we wanted to work with, but now like comes. Uh, schedules so then it was just a matter of okay when this guy can't come in then we'll ask this other person that we also wanted to work with so um yeah i mean that was pretty much how we decided we most of them were decided earlier on so like lena brown i know miranda has always wanted to work with her so we said well i mean she's she does dop work so let's let's get her to shoot hours and we liked her photography stuff so figured it could transition pretty well um 
Taylor Brown uh, is works very closely with her, so we we got him to sort of he was a stills photographer slash PA on the show. Um, Sydney Sabiston has done a lot of AD work, so we got her to be our AD. Um, uh, she was a I mean she was a person that introduced me to that side of things in the union world, so we we trusted her pretty well. Uh, Adam Izinski, also a friend of the show. Uh, Adam Uzinski, Jesse DeRock, Austin McKay, uh, they were sort of gaffer grip. Um, and all those guys have a lot of experience with film gear and lighting and all that jazz. So we trusted them with it. Tom Groom um, is out of the non-union people that I know. He's like the only sound guy that, we, that, are, that we're personally friends with. And you know you go with your friends because you trust them that they won't uh, yeah. just randomly bail on you. Uh, he's a reliable person to work with, and we worked with him several times on various things. So we got him. Uh, Ari Kowalchuk, and uh, we've seen her work online. And... That was makeup and special effects makeup kind of thing. Yeah, and That's what she's Ari amazing. Did. She's, she's super amazing. Good. She did like really good work. Like, uh, you know, as she was. She did doing... Man in the Arena, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Mitch's Mitch Rear's movie. Uh, and I I didn't know her prior to the shoot. Um, I just saw photos, um, based on Miranda's recommendation, and I looked at it and I was like, this look, these look amazing. And then yeah, they were yeah, amazing. Yeah, good work. And she's Bandit. really easy going. Like yeah, I, I messaged yeah. her, on, I DM'd her on Instagram and was like, girl, <clears throat> do you want to do some special effects makeup for the short film? She was like, girl, I'm down. Like when and where. <laughs> nice. So it was very. I love it when it's that easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Uh, oh, Josh Hood. Josh Hood's script super. That guy's script super extraordinaire. I've seen that guy work big and small shows, and uh, that guy is a powerhouse when it comes to. He's a he's a powerhouse. That guy knows what he's doing. Like, dude's a pro. So. Uh, he's also been on the show. Yeah, also been on the show. Where's the? Oh, around the globe we go episode. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, go check it out. Season two, episode eight. <laughs> Link, link below. Yeah, Josh Hood is a huge pro, so I really wanted to work with him again. Yeah. And then Thomas Hannon and Sapphire Morose and myself kind of doing art department slash PAing. Like, obviously, I was the co-director, but, like, I was doing a little bit of art, art department. Yeah. So let's transition into, the in my mind, one of the funnest and most uh Difficult parts of the prep process, location scouting and production and costume design prep stuff. Let's start there. Let's start with locations. Where did you shoot and why? Winnipeg is ripe with buildings from that era. Just literally, we just drive through them and pass them all the time. So it was just a matter of finding ones that, that finding the one that would let us shoot there and one that um is relative relatively safe um <laughs> area wise and yeah. yeah i mean that, those are that's a big one and there just happened to be Was safety a, a big issue no it did no. no no i've no, just no. shot in a lot of sketchy places before so i Fair really enough. wanted us to feel secure safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and the places that we got were pretty safe and we were always in big groups so um and then the other the one that we got really lucky with was um i guess it was left behind from a show a long time ago like a union shoot and they still had the toronto police station sign out 
on one of the buildings and they just left it. It was set deck and it's just there. Oh, oh yeah, I think it's, it's on Princess. Yeah. yeah, it says Toronto Police Station and it's got like um the carving of the words police station still. And we were like, Well, that's that's a free <laughs> you know, that's a a free exterior a, right there. That's a free exterior. Yeah. We never have to show him actually going in. That's but that's enough. Exactly. So uh yeah, we got lucky with that. And then we had to email a bunch of places for cemetery slash graveyard, because um, yeah. you know it's it's you know we can't just shoot at one that would be very disrespectful. Uh, thankfully, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So thankfully, Shariza uh, deck um, let us because they said that yeah we've we've let people shoot in our places before. Um, they they really only had one stipul two stipulation one be respectful of the grounds too. I uh, know. Uh, Christian symbols because it's because it's a uh, it's a Jewish um, cemetery. So it's like okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. yeah, and then Saint Norbert Heritage Park. Uh, Miranda's mom does work um, for that place, so uh, she was able to get us access to the exterior of the Man with a Million Faces cabin. Yeah, we still had to get a permit though. You know, get your permits to 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 be outside. I would on, get your permits on, uh, especially if you're on like a provincial park grounds. Um, yeah. And then the other one we got was uh, our office space, which was on Donald Street by um, the Manitoba Music Office, same building, uh, on the second floor. Um, there was like a vacancy, and um, we actually got access to it through um bob brown with leon a brown limited which was super great of him to help us out and give us that space for the weekend and um uh, you know the only the only real rules about it was you know just make sure you don't scuff up the floors yeah just don't scuff up the floors and just sweep after you're done and you know be respectful of the space and I mean, everyone was super awesome about about it, and you know, we were pretty firm about like all the furniture had to have, you know, little tennis balls underneath, or like all the film equipment yeah. had to have tennis balls and all that stuff, and everybody just went along with it. It was it was super great. So yeah, there was a, there was no issue on that on that yeah. front. I actually took one of the towels home from that place. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, it was a brown. It's a really nice towel. I use it as like a like a. Like one of the rugs that I that I wipe my car with now, but yeah, I actually took one from the washroom. They had like <laughs> a so bunch nice of. I use it from my car. Oh, because yeah, we brought and... a ton of our own towels, so we got them mixed up. Yes. Yes. Aww. Oh no. It, it was one of the brown ones because I went home and I'm like, this isn't one of my towels. This is like way nicer than the ones that I brought. Like you could tell it's for like faces, not not you know wiping floors. So I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is definitely this is definitely not one. And now over. you use it on your car. Oh heck yeah! <laughs> it's for but a face, it, but you're yeah. like, I'm gonna to be buff fair, up my uh, my window. To be fair, I don't actually think it was the buildings. I think it was the previous tenants because um, yeah. it used to be uh, like a like a modeling some fashion studio before before it was uh, vacant. So okay, yeah. So, All the same. Go. That's funny. Oh, yeah, there's gonna be a link on my Instagram uh, for the picture of that reg. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the towel. Can you make towel. a? Can you do an Instagram live and show us like? It's yes. like the "Where Are They Now" series where <laughs> you like, like revisit the, towel. the towel's life like a oh, year later. 
an origin story. <laughs> the uh, the towel is now an alcoholic because of um, separation issues from his family. It's just <laughs> toweling from South Park. What's its yeah. name? What's its name? Can you personify the towel? Yes, I, I will do that. No, like you have oh, to decide man. now. What's its name? Oh, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, uh, Lee Watt. Uh, that's a bad name. But okay, let's continue. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> carrying on. Let's talk about costume design. And all that went into Obviously, it's a period piece, so that's can be a huge hurdle in terms of locating costumes. What was that like for you guys? So for costumes, we um, actually... I had a contact... Um, that I we'd used for one of our theater shows previously. Um, a really good family friend of my of my mom and dad, um, Kristen Andrews, who runs Rag Pickers, um, and they have a location on I think it's Higgins, right? Uh, it's right by Gomez. Okay. It's underneath the um. It's underneath the Disraeli Bridge. Yeah. Um. So we were you know, uh, I kind of just arranged a time to meet with her. And I think that they only do appointment only, um, meetings for productions to come in and look around and find stuff. But I mean, she has like a treasure trove of like legitimately it's overwhelming amounts of costumes and props and from all time periods, like you could want, like she has, you know, Renaissance dress, um, you know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever you want. Um, so we went through there. Uh, we got our measurements for our actors, and Jermel and I went and found some suits and stuff, brought them back, tried them on everybody, decided what we wanted, then took whatever we didn't want to rent back to her, and then we rented the, the few pieces that we were actually going to use. Um... And yeah, it was pretty, 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 uh, I don't yeah, know, I pretty think, easy I process. Like it was, it was nice to have that access to that stuff. And I mean, anybody could contact rag pickers and go searching in the treasure trove for whatever they're looking for costume wise. And I mean, if you have a budget and you're able to, to pay for the stuff, it's like really good. So yeah. We did a lot yeah. of motion. We did a lot of CGI motion capture as well. Nice. <laughs> Mostly out like the snow. I don't yeah. think we did. I don't think we did any motion capture though. I'm yeah, just we kidding. did. Uh, we did it on uh, on Dagan. Dagan wasn't there the whole time. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah, because he had to fly to. I was I was that, Buchanan. Remember that very distant location that he was at. Yes. What is happening? <laughs> <on the> <laughs> uh, Memes. Uh, yeah, and then just to add on to what she was saying, um, in terms of production and costume design, uh, luckily, because Miranda and her company have been doing this for a little bit, uh, they, uh, they had a lot of pre-existing props already to use, yeah. so we it, we just added those in, uh, and they were very accessible to us, so um, this aspect of the film was actually probably one of the more simpler aspects, I'd say. So, before we head into break... Um, after which we'll discuss, like, the shoot and post-production. Um, what are some of the challenges that you faced during the prep process? And what are some of the things that you learned as a result of overcoming those challenges? Mm. 
challenges for me, um, co-directing was definitely a challenge for me. I don't think I would necessarily jump at the opportunity to do it again. Um, not because the experience was awful or anything. Um, but I'm, I'm a very, I, I'm a very A type kind of person and I, and I like having control. Like I like having support. Um, but I struggled definitely with like, um, splitting that control. Um, not cause I didn't trust Jermel and the process, but I think it, that was definitely probably my biggest challenge. Um, and for me, like takeaways, uh, just what I learned about myself and about how I am as a, as a leader from struggling from co-directing and kind of that whole, uh, aspect, which I'm sure we'll probably dive into later, but that's me. <laughs> Definitely. Was there anything in terms of, um, to sort of give a more, a bit more of a narrow focus and get you thinking more specifically, was there anything in terms of pre-production that was particularly challenging or, and what did you learn from it if there was and if not, um, what did you learn from how smooth pre-production went? Um, I guess the biggest challenge in pre-production was making the grant application as good as possible. And, but while well, at the same time, you also have to be creating the script. So those two being a one-two punch that you kind of have to uh, do at the same time, I guess was a pretty big challenge because then you're trying to make both really good at the exact same moment. So it kind of divides your mental resources a little bit. Uh, and then the other one would be your usual problems with in any shoot is like scheduling, where are we shooting, when are we shooting, um, that kind of stuff. Um, are we going to be able to find these locations that we want? If we don't get the money from this grant that we're applying for, um, what are we going to do budget-wise? How are we, as the creators, going to divide that up? So it's all that, the planning, that would be the biggest issue was the planning and dividing things. I would say it was the biggest pre-production issue that uh, we encountered, and I'm sure pretty much anybody who makes films encounters. Sure. Was there anything that you learned from doing, I guess I'll specify and say, dealing with that one-two punch of script and grant having to be done at the same time, was there a particular lesson that you learned, either of you learned that you could sort of in 30 seconds or less neatly package to somebody listening who might be wondering about that process? Um, yeah, I, I guess the lesson really is uh, be prepared not to get the grant just because it doesn't matter how good your thing is, which, I mean, obviously the person creating that thing has to believe that it's good enough so you have to have that but just because it's good enough for you doesn't mean it's good enough for the people who are going to be handing out the grant so you have to be prepared not to um get it i i i'm of two minds with this i, I could almost say you go in thinking you're not gonna get it yeah 
plan for it, plan for it anyway, like that, okay, assuming I'm not going to have this money at all, how am I still going to keep going with this project? That way, when you do get the money, or if you do get the money, then it's a bit of a, oh, great, now I have more headroom. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think our plan going in was like, let's prep to not get it. Let's prep to take care of all of the elements of production without the preconceived notion that we're going to have, you know, however many thousand dollars it was i don't even remember now but let's go in without that and if we do get the money then like it'll be nice to be able to cut honorariums to our crew yeah you know yeah that was i think our mentality going into it because uh, we knew we had enough resources to probably pull it together with like a very very tight small budget anyway um and it was about like if we do get the money like let's let's reward all these people's time as generously as we can and maybe augment some of our own personal costs that we put into it that we already have put into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of, I think our approach to it. I, if I remember correctly, like when we yes, were that, compartmentalizing, that I actually had forgotten that we established that, but yes, that was definitely something we established back then. Nice. Well, um, better about does it for the first half of the show. We're going to take a quick break, play some, Sweet, sweet lo-fi to uh, set you up for the next half, and we'll see you on the other side. process and talk about the edit and the sound edits and anything else that you uh, want to talk about. So let's start with the obvious. Um, 
what was sort of the beyond the obvious in terms of like edit and make it make it look good and make it flow nicely. Stylistically, what was the approach in the post-production process? Um, so I kind of touched on it a little bit uh, earlier on, but uh, in terms of the actual like I guess pacing of it, so it, it's it's it starts off pretty slow and we hold on things a little bit longer and things don't flow as quickly for about the first half of the movie up until we cut to the cabin and then from there i purposely started to add faster and faster cuts and in terms of how i structure the climax that was again um i mean in no ways around it i was i was copying the way silence of the lambs did it so i was literally just using the editing style that they did um that, I mean, a lot of other films have used since then. So it's just the intercutting between three things, really. There was the intercutting in the uh, the warehouse, the intercutting um, from the cabin stuff, and an intercutting with the present timeline, uh, and present timeline being 1930s in the graveyard. And it's just a matter of um, <clears throat> using A plus B equals C a lot of the time in those, in those scenarios. So like uh, an example would be as he's you know approaching uh jason's character's body walter, um, walter's body in the past i intercut it with him approaching his tombstone in the present uh so it's just little symbolic things like that and just to show that as he's walking towards the the tombstone in his head, he's currently thinking about the time that he was approaching his corpse. So I was kind of trying to intercut his mind state in the present by cutting to things in the past to show what he's thinking about. Because, I mean, the whole the whole idea is that the short film, it's kind of most of it's taking place in his head. He's remembering and he's recounting all the events uh, that happened that night. So uh, I was trying to project that onto the screen in terms of the edit. Um, and I guess a little bit of a foreshadow when he does the hand thing, but that one's, I wouldn't, it's not very, I don't, I wouldn't call, call uh, you know, that's not any award-winning technique or anything. It wasn't really very subtle. It was just, but I wanted to put it there just to symbolize that, uh, that, that parallel between them when he puts his hand on, uh, James's shoulder and it cuts to, um, the hand on one of the, uh, tombstones that's a, you know bit of a uh, signifier on what's to come. Let's talk about the sound design and, and what the goal there was stylistically and narratively beyond, again, the obvious of making it sound good. Early in the film, um, there was quite a lot of opportunity to have environmental kind of ambience be very prominent. Um, and so I kind of I kind of leaned on that a lot in terms of building up the actual environment that the characters are inhabiting. And then towards um, the end of uh, the deliberation scene where Walter and James have their big discussion, the sound design sort of shifts into more focused on the mental state of the characters and less about the space that they're in. Um, and that sort of intensifies during the climax in coupling with the soundtrack where 
we're focusing in on very specific sounds that will heighten tension as opposed to trying to just have every sound that would normally be there. Um, especially towards the end at the reveal of the body. Um, a lot of those elements that we are leaning on earlier are actually not there anymore. And there's a lot more focus on um, that lingering sort of suspense, the music, and very few sounds. Um, just to kind of zero in and, and be very intense with that moment and very introspective, kind of how James must be feeling. Was that done through sound effects or soundscapes or how did you, what specifically technique wise did you use to sort of approach those goals in the design? Yeah, there's, there's very few sound effects uh, in the sort of cinematic sense. There's a couple, um, but I lean more towards ambience and just soundscapes. Yeah. Leaning more towards that. And then um towards yeah towards the end again the music kind of takes a little bit of the lead almost like the picture and the music are in a slow dance together and nothing else is there you know nice. um so that's kind of uh what we were kind of going for with the sound okay so let's talk a little bit of, about the music and the process of of um, finding your composer and then sitting down with him and discussing the musical goals of the film because music doesn't always have to be but can often be a huge piece of the final um, whole and I guess to start beyond finding your composer and all that um was it your intention to make music a centerpiece as opposed to just sort of, you know, filling in the gaps and accenting the visuals and the narrative on screen? Uh, I would actually say yes. It was a deliberate choice to make it more centerpiece rather than uh, background noise. Yeah. Um, mainly because uh, it was something that we wanted just to add to the overall sort of tone, atmosphere, and and emotional impact of of you know the whatever scene we're on, that and I mean we wanted to showcase um, Liam Barry's music, which is amazing. So uh, we were like, it'd be it'd be almost a waste to use his stuff as background noise. So sure, sure, yeah, yeah. When we reached out to Liam. I mean, I'd worked with Liam before and I knew what he's capable of pulling off in such a, in, in, you know, in such a short film because this film's like 10 minutes and it by no means is able to have uh, the same amount of time um, as like a longer feature uh, to have a musical arc in the same way where you have reprises of the same theme and all this stuff but um still there's four different pieces of music in this film and they all have different purposes um and uh liam released all the music on bandcamp and spotify to to listen to 
uh, just on their. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, in their, you know, in their raw form, like without the film accompaniment. So it's like really nice to be able to listen to all the detail that he put into the sounds. And I, I know Jermel, we were talking like when we first were getting into contact with Liam and starting to talk a little bit about the direction of the film. Um, you and I both really felt that it needed to have this, we, we, we needed the music to heavily lean into the strings. Um, so like cello, violin. Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. Yeah. Why strings? Um, I think it, it sort of strikes a chord, <laughs> huh. uh, in a way that that other choices would not have. Um, I just know that from my personal experience, when when shows, movies of this sort of genre use that type of music uh, creatively and quote unquote correctly, it it lands really well. Like it amplifies the scene to a whole other level. So we wanted to try to uh, emulate that. Okay. Within hours. So that would be why we went with it. Fair enough. And do you feel that you achieved your goals with the soundtrack? You've kind of touched on it, but to sort of narrow down, do you feel like you achieved the desired outcomes? I, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I love the soundtrack. I think. Yeah, it, it adds like, a, it, 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 it boosts it in a good way. You know, it it doesn't distract. It doesn't just disappear in the background. It's just it's there, and it's it's a vital piece of what you're watching. Yeah. So I think in 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 this in this specific scenario, yes. With editing the film and and sort of taking what is presumably several hours of footage and then condensing it into a cohesive narrative, um, what are some of the desired takeaways that you want the audience to get in the screening of the film when they're watching it and do you sort of consider those things when you're doing the picture and the sound and um the music creation or is it mostly for you guys in the edit process about um achieving your own your own desired goals, not looking at the audience scope. Does that make sense? Mm, good question. Um, I would actually, I think, lean towards the latter. Yeah, it's it's more what what I think would land, what I think would work, what I think would would uh, make the most sense creatively. Uh, yeah, I don't think I th- I thought of it on a bigger scope. Other than that. Like, I don't think I was considering audience expectations or opinions of any sort. Okay. It was more just, uh, you know what, this, this, this thing that I did here, I think that works. And then I, that was it. I would then move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, but I think that would be the extent of it for me. Yeah. What about you, Miranda, with the sound? Well, I think that, like, the goal of the sound was to really uh, build to a point where when it cut out, it, you know, where where it kind of diminished to just its basic core elements by the end um, that the, the, that transition was felt. And so I think in, in a lot of ways, sometimes like when we experience trauma and, and stuff in our lives and some people 
deal with it in the sort of coping where you become numb to a lot of things for a while. Um, and I think that the character of Buchanan and, and sort of how his character arc has been uh, throughout uh, my experience writing him and sort of the journey that he's gone on, he very much is that, t- that type of character that sort of numbs stuff. You know, he just kind of puts it away and he doesn't really confront it in a way where he can get better. It's just a way to cope. So for the sound, like having it kind of, it sort of move into a state where it does sort of just become somber and it does sort of just linger and it even like fades into the credits and it, you know, there's a hopeful tinge of, of, of the music, which is something I talked to Liam about having was, can this theme not just be, you know, somber, 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 sad, but can there be this, this hint of hope, this kind of the sound of, you know, maybe things will get better. Maybe things, you know, won't be so bad for him down the line but right now yeah they're not they're not great um so i guess if anything that's what i would lend in terms of like the sound design um elements so so you would say then from that then that you were definitely sort of thinking about what you wanted the audience to get from the sound and the music i think so and as a creative person like whenever i do anything it always kind of comes back to character for me, it's not so much about like, it's not, yeah, it's not so much about like the actual film, um, like as a whole, uh, sometimes those moments where, you know, a character's undergoing trauma or a character's undergoing a really big shift. Sometimes those moments lean more into character than anything else. And I kind of just enjoy exploring that as a creative. And so like when I'm writing, when I'm directing, when I'm doing anything, um, for me, it, it's really important for me to think about the character and that will help inform like my decisions technically, especially with sound and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, something that I heard a while ago that sort of stuck with me when I think when I was in film school, I heard, um, it's the idea that it doesn't matter, you know, how good the visuals are, how great the sound is or how good the VFX are or whatever. If you don't have a character, that your audience can grab onto, then it's all sort of done as um, icing on on oh yeah on on an uninteresting cake. At the end of the day, yes, I I one hundred percent agree. That is something that I've experienced several times with various shows and movies. Um, I can tell they're well made. Uh, they have all the production value in the world. Everybody loves them. But because I personally could not hook onto any of the characters, not even the side, not the protagonist, I don't like it. So I, I 100% agree with that statement. So transitioning into using the notion of characters and getting your audience to grab onto them and hoping that they grab onto them, um, what do you want? I guess in terms of the the grander scheme of things, lesson or takeaway or message of the film, what is it in in your guys' opinions? Um, 
for me anyway, I, this could be a completely different answer for Miranda because she could see the story from a different lens. For me, uh, I guess the main takeaway from this is uh, you move on. No matter how th uh, bad things get, uh, you know, you can keep revisiting them. You can get, keep, um, you can keep hanging on to them, but eventually, I think naturally, you do move on in even in the smallest ways possible. In this case, it was as simple as him leaving that hat behind. I mean, the movie with the the way that the uh, timeline goes, it's heavily implied that he's had that hat for four years. So him leaving that behind is him is is a symbol of him starting to let go. Interesting. So that's that's my one of sort of the messages, I guess, that's sort of woven in there. What about you, Miranda? I would pretty much agree with Jermel. I think, I think other interpretations um, surrounding like relationships with, you know, like a found father figure is also something that people can take away from this. Um, in what ways? I don't know. I think it, it, it really depends who's watching it. Um, but that's the only other thing I might add. And yeah, just sure. dealing with guilt, dealing with trauma. Let's talk about something that we've sort of skirted around for a good chunk of the podcast. Um, you guys co-directed the film together. And so before we get into the nitty gritty of co-directing, um, thoughts on, on co-directing as a practice, as a creative uh, form of executing a film. Good idea, bad idea. Go. Uh, I don't. I don't think, personally, anyway. I don't think. Uh, I think it could be both. It, it just it depends. I think that the answer is it depends. I don't think it's a, a clear cut good and a clear cut bad. Uh, it's just a matter of it depends who you're working with, what the circumstances are, what the context is, yada yada. So that's my take on that. Um, specifically for this one, I know we, like, well, we'll just say uh, up front, we, yeah, we, we struggled when we were doing that. But I think that has to do with the fact that neither one of us have done it before. That's just growing pains. If you're doing something for the first time, it's bound to have some speed bumps. That's sure. how it is. So was it necessarily bad? I wouldn't say so. Was it challenging? Yeah, I'd say it was. I've uh I've done it before, so um but this was my first time doing it with a person that I was romantically involved with at the time, so that was an added <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, let's I mean, dive into that as much as we can. Yeah, so I'll just kinda Yeah, you like I've done it before. Um I hadn't had great experiences with it in the past, but like going into this project with someone I was romantically involved with, like Jermel and I like were very close at the time. And so we're like, yeah, let's do this. Um, did I have ultimately a bad experience doing it? No, I don't think so. I don't, I like looking back, I'm like, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Um, but th yeah, there were struggles for sure. And I mean, I think too, that like when you have a relationship that's like, you know, when, when you have like 
a lot of knowledge about the other person and how they work as a human being. Um, like when you're involved with them in, in, in a close friends or more than friends type of way, um, you know a lot more about like their gears that are turning when they're doing things. And that can lead to really healthy dynamics or it could lead to really not healthy dynamics. And I think it's just about, like Jermel was saying, like deciding what's the best situation um, for this particular project. What's the best fit? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll add to that. Uh, I guess in terms of, I guess in terms of struggles, uh, going off of what you said just now about how you, you know the other person really well as a human being as well on top of uh being a colleague i think that made it so there were definitely moments during the shoot and during the entire process that made us not be objective about things because our emotions were uh, heavily heavily involved just by default because at that time we were romantically involved so that did even though we were aware of it in the moment it still added a sort of um fog to some aspects because certain things that need to be said we couldn't say it because it would affect the other person emotionally because we know how they are emotionally uh little things like that which would then you know obviously uh affect the shoot in little ways creatively or logistically uh i think there were compromises that had to be made uh, along the way and so uh, those those compromises that were made um I, I don't think it ultimately you know ruined the film ruined the shoot but they they were they had to be made they had to be done and it was because of the fact that we were romantically involved and that was there's no ways no two ways uh about it that's what yeah. happened and like because i'm super a type about like the way i manage um i found that like I, instead of being very objective about conflict, like there were moments where I would get really snippy with, with you, Jermel, and I would, you know, because we had, you know, a relationship that was more than just colleagues um, and collaborators, there were moments where, you know, certain things felt more personal to me than other things. And, you know, obviously, you know, when you're in that position, you're not able to really see it from the outside and go like, maybe I shouldn't, you know, react that way because there's a different sort of dynamic that's like added to the mix that you're not, you know, you're not prepared for the way that you may react to certain things because that's a different territory. You know, it's like, how do I tell you that I hate this idea without it seeming, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Um, or like, how do I, you know, if I'm disappointed in something that happened, um, you know, I could tell you straight up, like, dude, you fucked up, like, what the fuck? But that looks bad in front of the crew. <laughs> so you're just like, oh. And, it, like, and, if, and if you have, again, if the romantic side wasn't there and we started talking about that, it would just be like, it would be seen as like a work disagreement. But because that aspect was there, if we started arguing that way, it would be seen as like, oh, this couple's fighting. And or like way, that's unprofessional. Yeah, or that's unprofessional. And yeah. there's always going to be that sort of lens that everybody's looking at it from. And uh, so, 
yeah, that that made it so certain discussions couldn't happen because people would might or could see it that way. I also think that we may have, um, I mean, this is just something that I think might have happened. I don't know if it actually did happen, but I think that we may have made more compromises than you and I would otherwise make just because, you know, we respect the other person. Yeah. Do those judgment calls, how do you feel they affected or did they affect the uh, final product of the film? Um, I, uh, now, it's been so long now since they were made that I don't actually remember exactly what the compromises ended up being anymore. Now, I'm just looking at it from the lens of this final product that we now have at our hands. And I think... Um, I, ultimately, I don't think it affected it in any negative way. I thought, I think at the end of the day, we still ended up with a product that is very much both of our best um, feet forward. Okay. Despite the struggles that we had during the walking. This might be uh, a, like a controversial opinion, but I don't really feel creatively like I was I was 100% during this project. Like I, I really feel like I dropped my ball quite a bit. And so like I... I sort of disagree with what Jermel said, not for him, but for me. And I feel like, like I, I, I struggled being present during this whole process quite a lot. And I think that for me, like looking at the film, I have a really hard time like watching it. Um, just because I know how much I slipped by my own standards. Right. Yeah. It's not really about, like ultimately what the film looks like in the end, because I know like it's as good as it could have been given what we got on the shoot. Like I truly feel like post went well. Um, I was really delayed in post because of a, a quite a number of reasons, but it it's done. You know, we got it out. I think we did the best we could. Um, but I'm, but I'm coming at it from like a place where like emotionally, mentally, spiritually i felt very disconnected from the project and so because of that i think i definitely have a strange relationship with it now that it's done if you put aside as much as you can are you happy with the film are you happy with the outcome in spite of those challenges that you mentioned objectively yes in terms of my relationship to it no but like I, I I like the film, I think looks, you know it's. But I have a weird relationship to it, and that's just like bottom line, like my problem. But I don't think that'll ever change. That's fair. Um, what about you, Jamel? With the same sort of line of questioning, are you happy with the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I think. Again, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I think given what we had, given the struggles that we had to go through, given the resources, all the actors, all the crew, all that taken into account, I think we made the best film possible with those things in our hands. 
could it have been better? Yes. Sure. The answer is always yes. It could always be better. But is it as good as we could make it? Also, yes. Interesting. So, I mean, I guess I'll close with two final questions. Um, one of them has become a trademark in the show at this point. But would you, with, with or without a significant other, would you co-direct again? And what advice would you give, more importantly, what advice would you give to somebody considering doing it? Would I co-direct again? Yes. Would a significant other? Yeah, maybe. I don't know where or when that'll be possible again, but yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to it. To me, it's a case-by-case thing. It's never the same thing. You know, uh, the film that you're doing today is not going to be the same shoot that you did two months ago. There's going to be, it's going to have its own set of challenges, set of um, issues, set of positives that the other shoot did not have. So you have to take it case-by-case, scenario-by-scenario. And for that, I always go with okay, does, does co-directing in this specific scenario make sense? If the answer is yes, then by all means, I will do it. I am not uh, a super A-type person. I am more of a, um, I will do whatever it takes so we can get the result that we wanted. What If that means me sharing some of the power, having all the power or having no power, I will do whatever. So that is my take on uh, the co-directing thing. Um, advice? know that it is the right move for this specific project you're doing if it's not you have to be honest and say it is not the the move don't do it if you feel if you have you know um doubts about it if it feels like mm, i feel like it should be one creative vision not two people shared for sure don't do it because that will uh screw you over pretty badly um so be honest with yourself and whoever it is you're working with okay and what about you, Miranda? I mean, for me, I think I can't definitively say I would never do it again because I think that that's, like Jermel was saying, super reliant on the set of circumstances surrounding your film. Like, what's best for the film? What's best for the team as well? Um, I don't think I would jump at the opportunity to do it again. However, if that was the situation I was placed in, I would definitely rise to the occasion. If that was best for the film, I would definitely probably do it again. Um, just because like, I've had a couple weird experiences with co-directing doesn't mean it's like ret- like doesn't mean it's like boycotted forever. Um, yeah, but <clears throat> I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends. Like, I would definitely, like, co-write for sure. I would definitely, like, co-produce for sure. I think you just have to know, like, basically, I'm just going to, like, be so redundant with what Jermel said, but I think you just have to know, like, at the end of the day, like, what's going to build the strongest team. And if your team is strongest with two directors at the helm, then go fucking get it. But if that... Co- other co-director would be a better assistant director or they'd be a strong producer or they might be a strong DP, then maybe that's your best team because those two people care tremendously and having two people that care tremendously at the helm filling two different roles instead of sharing one might be stronger in the long run. Yeah. Okay. 
and I guess then to close this up here before we say goodbye, uh, I'd like Eiji to take a, a couple seconds or so and define success for yourselves as filmmakers. Uh, let's start with you, Miranda. It's been uh, about a year since I did this. Well, a year and a half, I would say, since the last time on the podcast when I made the replacement. Um, success hasn't really changed that much for me. Uh, like, I think the last time I defined it, it was about, like, touching one person in a type of way. Like, where they kind of had, like, a connection to your work. And you shared that conversation with that person. Like, that, to me, feels like success. I mean, I think to add my last couple years of experience doing more stuff onto my definition... Um, I think recognition is always, can always be viewed as a success, whether or not you're particularly proud of the work in an indefinite sort of way. I think it definitely, um, gives your film a little bit of, or it gives whatever work you're doing. It doesn't have to be a film, but it gives it a little bit of, uh, it, it bolsters it a little bit for you and makes you feel seen, makes you feel a little bit justified in having poured so much time into what you did um, that somebody, a jury, whether that's a jury, a person, like the Academy, uh, saw it as, you know, worthy of, of a title. And I think that's really amazing too. Um, but I think we can find success in small ways and I try to find it in small ways like every day, whether that's like just spending time um, spending time like perfecting my craft like spending an hour two hours writing every day just to get better every day um, is a success in a small way and those pave the way for the larger successes so just just keep making stuff A nice <laughs> and Jamal what about you? uh Success to me, yeah, I, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but it still hasn't changed either. Um, <clears throat> success to me is me setting a bar of some sort for whatever the thing is, and did I meet the bar and or surpass it? If the answer is no, it wasn't a success. If the answer is yes, it was a success. Um, now, what the bar is changes depending on what the thing is. Um, so whether if it's a it's a film or a career thing or you know something as simple as like did I manage to make myself uh, a meal by 2 p.m. like I said I would and then I did that's a success but if it's like ah it's 4 p.m. and I still haven't eaten then I pretty, I failed pretty badly um, so that's that's it that's my sort of uh, definition of success for everything in my life nice so. On that note, uh, we'll close out as we always do by thanking our guests. Thank you, Miranda and Jamel. Um, where can they find you online, Jamel? You can find me online uh, on Vimeo. Just look up uh, Jermel Pasqua. I should be the only one with that name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's like eight and of then you. Instagram.com. Yeah, Instagram.com slash Jermel underscore P. Um, those would be the best outlets to uh, check out what I am up to um, film-wise and life-wise. Nice. And what about you, Miranda? Yeah, you can find me on Vimeo. 
at Miranda Morose. Uh, Instagram at Miranda Morose. Um, and uh, the film will be on Vimeo the day before this episode actually comes out. So it the film came out Thursday. So um, that'll also be in the show notes, I believe. And it's also on Vimeo. Yeah, check it out. DM us. Tell us you loved it. No, just kidding. But if you want. But seriously, <laughs> You don't have to tell us, but it, it, it feels good. It feels yeah, good. please. We sure. need validation. Check out Liam's soundtrack. Hire Liam. Spotify. Uh, hire Thank all of him. our crew. Give them a Love us all. Give them a hug. All cast. Give them a hug. But not till after quarantine's over. You should be social distancing. Yes. Hug them <laughs> from afar. Yeah. And you can find us online at ATCT Show everywhere. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Miranda from the Around the Craft Table team, and you've just heard Season 3, Episode 2, Finding Success in Small Ways, a post-mortem analysis of the man with a million faces. This week's episode was executive produced and directed by Miles A. Taylor. It was edited by myself, Miranda Morose. It featured Miles A. Taylor as host, myself, and special guest and filmmaker, Jermel Pasqua. We're pretty excited for you to hear these conversations we've had and hope to spark some new conversations about filmmaking within your own circle of friends, collaborators, or just in the comments section. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and most third-party podcast apps as well. Connect with us on social media at ATCTShow, or just send us an email at craftablepodcast at gmail.com if you have any important questions or requests. We'd love to hear from you. Bye-bye.